Welcome to the MedFaber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, y'all? Fun show today. Our guest is the founder of Flucus Ventures, and she's invested in over 200 angel deals while also serving as general counsel and partner for a real estate finance fund. In today's show, we hear how someone with a capital markets law background transitioned into VC. Our guest walks us through her path to break into the world of venture capital, first by participating in deals on AngelList, then building out her own syndicate. She shares how COVID accelerated the transition, allowing her to shift to a remote world, She talks about her investment philosophy, why she benefits from a non-tech background, and what it's like writing checks while being based in Florida. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Flucas Ventures, Ashley Flucas. Ashley, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Where do we find you today? South Florida? I mean, is this like, are you just on the venture capital bus where everyone is moving to Florida and Texas? (laughs) Is that why you're there? What's going on? I was born in Ocala, Florida, which is horse country in the middle of nowhere in Florida. So I'm a native Floridian. I left for college and law school and started the early part of my career in London. I've been back here in Florida for eight years now. So I was not part of the mass migration. Sadly, you went to Duke. I say that, right? Aren't you a Dukey? Yeah, yeah. Duke undergrad. I was a Cavalier, but I grew up in North Carolina. I went to Carolina basketball camp as a young adolescent. And I recall that my uncle, my uncle Meb, by the way, like the only other Meb on the planet, my uncle Meb went to Duke, but he had uh, always tried to take me to the ACC games. I remember I was wearing a Duke shirt. I showed up to Carolina basketball camp with a Duke shirt. And within the first five minutes, they made me take it off and be shirtless for the entire day. They were not about to have anyone wearing Duke paraphernalia at Chapel Hill. So listeners, the rivalry is real. (laughs) Where was grad school? Harvard for law school. So what is a Harvard law dookie doing, sending out some pretty incredible angel investment ideas? 
how'd that transition happen? I know the answer, but tell the listeners. Venture tech was not something that I had exposure to in college or law school. I don't know if it was an East Coast thing or just kind of being on the track that I was, political science major, and then law school. But I started my career as a capital markets lawyer, um, started off practicing in London. And around that time, actually, I got my hands on this book, The Monk and the Riddle. And it was about a guy who I believe incidentally had went to Harvard Law School decided that the typical legal path kind of wasn't for him, kind of went about traveling the world, started taking some jobs in tech and eventually got into venture capital. That was my first aha moment like a decade ago that I'm like, that's exactly what I want to do. Like I had kind of no idea what I really wanted to do. I kind of fell into law by default in some ways, but I'm like, this is it. And he's kind of speaking my language. But I still was kind of on the path that I was on, worked in London for a few years, got sidetracked by the path that I was following, kind of always had this in the back of my head, but honestly had no idea how to get started. That idea was just kind of tucked away for a long time, I guess, basically like seven years because I didn't make my first investment in venture until three years ago. But frankly, I was at a point where I actually had the capital to allocate towards the asset class. And I was thinking about what I wanted to do, not just from an investment standpoint, but from a time standpoint. And you know, I guess probably just reading headlines or whatever at startups that were doing well at the time. I'm like, yeah, I remember that venture thing. I really want to try to figure this out. And then gulp, like, how do I do that? Because I was in North Palm Beach, Florida. This is pre-COVID, pre-Zoom explosion, et cetera. And I had a full-blown career working around commercial real estate, not, not anything in tech, but just was determined to see how could I figure out how to do this virtually because I didn't think it was scalable or practical, You know, just trying to go to the epicenters and then balancing that against a full-time career. I just spent some time trying to figure out, I was like, there must be people who do this in some kind of remote fashion. And the first thing I discovered, or the best thing I should say I discovered was AngelList. I've read a ton of stuff about the platform. It seemed to have credibility. I could see that a ton of really good deals had passed through it. And so I thought, okay, this is a great way to get started. And then also just learn, right? So I could join a bunch of syndicates, see a lot of deal flow and kind of learn the ins and outs, the language, the players and the rules of the game as it were. And so I did that. For the first year and a half, a combination of starting out on AngelList and getting emboldened. What year in the metaverse timeline was this? <laughs> Is this like 2018? I think I made my first investment on AngelList in late, like September of 2018. So just coming up on the three-year anniversary. After I kind of got my feet wet doing that, um, kind of got emboldened and, and really started reaching out cold, trying to get it direct on cap tables or you know, going to virtual demo days and that kind of thing to the extent they were available. And then had the next evolution, the idea in March of 2020 when COVID hit, I'm like, oh yeah, now is the time. A lot of folks are going to be pulling back, assessing their portfolio, trying to stem the bleeding. This is a really opportunistic time for someone who's kind of not afraid and new in the game to get started. And then also, I think probably going to that real estate background, kind of a mindset of the most opportunity is in trouble in terms of being able to get into things that you may not ordinarily get into or getting into things that attract the prices and so on and so forth. And then the added component of virtual was going to be the new way to do business. And now as we see 
things are hybrid, virtual, distributed, etc. So it was kind of a perfect time to try to do that. We're going to dig into a bunch of things here, but the first being, it's rare at this point where a guest mentions a book that I've never heard of. So I have the monk, what is the monk and the riddle in route, mm-hmm. it hasn't showed up yet, but I'm now a owner of that. It's probably there when I get home today, knowing Amazon. I'm excited to check that out. What's really cool about your experience and story thus far, and only being a handful of years in, four years in, I guess, I don't know that I've met anyone yet from this investment angelist that I probably have as much Venn diagram overlap on portfolio companies. So I'm mm. looking forward to hearing your methodology as we go down the list. But it's a pretty amazing point in time to where your story of how you've kind of gone from pure investor to now lead, like you mentioned from Florida, not in Silicon Valley, is possible in 2020s now where this is not only a thing, but a very successful thing. So let's walk through sort of like your evolution. What was your mindset in the first handful of like investments and deals that you made? And you've made quite a few. And eventually we'll walk through how that process has evolved into doing your own syndicate. But let's start with the early days. What was sort of like the goal and approach as you started to allocate to these early stage startups? It was kind of diving in the deep end. I mean, the things that I had going for me was the legal and capital markets background. So I felt comfortable chugging through the stuff that I needed to review But venture is still a bit of a different animal. And I didn't know anyone else who'd ever made an angel investment. So I didn't have community or a mentor or someone that I could go to. It was kind of throwing myself in the deep end and using a substantial amount of my own capital. But in those early days, I mean, candidly, I didn't have... I wouldn't say that I truly had a real thesis. It was kind of... I know it when I see it. And I think maybe as typical of probably early investors clinging to things that are familiar. So if I look at the skew of earlier companies, consumer and fintech because of the cap markets background, and weirdly enough, and probably pretty adventurous of me at the time, I was also early on looking at stuff in emerging markets following, which is still a big thesis of mine, but following this idea of okay, here's a company, here's using a playbook that I've seen, you know, work really well unicorn level, perhaps in the US, this team looks really good. They're executing really fast. It looks like they're going to be able to potentially dominate in their region. Maybe it's not necessarily my comfort zone. Like I have some contacts in the region, but I think this works. And so far that, that in particular has panned out really well. But in the beginning, frankly, I didn't have a lot of discipline around check size, cadence of investment, et cetera. It was more intuitive style than anything else, good or bad, particularly when your early thoughts have evolved around that. And then, you know, certain signals, et cetera, in terms of co-investors. But in the beginning, I guess it was one of those, it's better to be lucky than good type of things. 100%. I mean, I think your process, which on the surface may sound less intentional than it probably was, I think is really thoughtful because so much about investing, and this applies to public markets as well comes down to personality. And a lot of people will naturally gravitate towards certain styles. I have friends in this world of startup investing that they don't want the high attrition rate of a seed or pre-seed portfolio. 
it's painful for them to see the losses and low batting average. So they gravitate towards late stage, private, pre-public. On the flip side, you have people that say, look, I only want to invest in tech companies. And you may not know that in the beginning. And so starting to go about it the way you did, which is very similar. These listeners of the podcast have been hearing me drone on about this for a long time. Very similar to my approach as well, which was start small, place a significant number of bets so that you can start to get a feel for what your approach will condense to over time. And I have a very specific approach, some of which is the, you'll note when you see it, <laughs> approach that you're talking about. But I think that's a good way to get going because you kind of learn the space and figure out what you gravitate towards. It's important. I don't think you really know until you're in it or really capable or maybe should be using other people's money until you've done that with your own money. But figuring that out and doing just the analysis and challenging myself to question, okay, like now, once you start to build this track record, besides obviously looking at things that are familiar, trying to really dissect, okay, like what are the unifying themes behind these investments, even if it's not in the same vertical? What is it that keeps attracting you? And then obviously at times we go, go on and you see how these companies are trugging along. Then you have a little bit more data to see some correlations between you know what you were analyzing and what ended up being effective. And so for me, like I said, that's how it happened in the beginning until I just started to see enough deals and started to branch out a bit more, start to test some of the same thesis, but test it out in other spaces to see if some of those things still hold. And that's basically how it evolved. And then actually, I came across another book. I think that's got multiple authors, so I won't be able to quote the authors, but it was called Play Bigger. And it was around this whole idea of category creation. And I was reading a memo from another syndicate in the context of this investment called Turing. And so I was kind of looking at the tour. I read the book or I was reading some excerpts of stuff from the book. And I was looking at Turing kind of through that lens and then went and read the book and invested in Turing and they are doing beyond amazing. And then later on ended up meeting the company and leading several syndicates for them as well. But that was kind of eye-opening for me. And so what that book said is the probably the best explanation of how I look at things, which again, in some ways is cheating a bit. It's a bit broad and it's a bit, I know it when I see it, but it's kind of this idea of category creation or companies owning categories. And I realize that's probably what I like a lot about kind of the emerging markets that we talked about. This idea of you want to be an Uber and Lyft and not who's number three, particularly early states, that's the most attractive. It's a different skill set thought when you're B plus investing because there, you know, there's product market fit, et cetera. So you're just looking at some different metrics than you are a pre-seed to A. Well, you've been successful. I saw congrats on Shipper Cash just announced yesterday. They are now officially the most valuable tech company startup in Africa, which I see is in your portfolio holdings. We had Ham on the show. He's great. Tell me how your sort of filters and framework has evolved to today. So what are you looking for? Are you a Pre-seed girl, are you down Series A? Are you looking at mostly emerging markets? How do you filter through all the noise to what you're looking for after a few years and a few hundred positions? I like to think, I hope if you're doing it right, you should be able to be much more surgical. I think when you're first starting out, it might be like a hatchet approach, but in the end, I think you should end up 
pretty surgical and pretty precise. So there is a lot of noise. And I do think you still, even me, I love to still see a lot of volume, even if ultimately, like as it kind of passes through the sieve, it's going to be much narrower, but you get to know what you're looking for. You know, I think the hard part of being a solo investor and angel is, especially in the beginning, is kind of that lack of an institutional knowledge base, right? In terms of understanding trends within the space, why companies have failed, what early signs or red herrings or whatever you want to call it. And if you do it enough over time, if you do enough deals and get exposed to enough deals, you can start to kind of build some of that experience base as well. So for me, I like to think I'm getting more efficient. For me, the number one thing that I focus on, and you know, it's not applicable to something like biotech, but for the most part, anything that has a sales type component is I'm really focused on distribution. That's the single most important thing to me on the theory of you can have a product that really is not objectively amazing or reinventing the game. But if you're brilliant around distribution, you can have a big company. And similarly, great ideas are a dime a dozen. If you don't know how to distribute that, then you have nothing. Companies who focus on distribution, usually when you're having those conversations around that, you get a lot of insight into the other things that matter, the team, et cetera, but how they think around those problems is important. And having something other than I'm planning to buy Facebook and Google ads, not that that can't be a part of your strategy, but companies that have thought deeply around that and doing something different, that's when I felt like I've kind of had the most success, companies that focus on that. And I think having a non-tech background frees me to think in that way and think, I guess, more like a plain vanilla business way in that I'm getting better over time. But you know, I'm not someone who's going to come in and be necessarily deep on product. I actually think that's an advantage because I think people who are so close to something, you think you're an expert and that can be good or bad in terms of falling in love or being too critical considering the iterations things will go to or thinking about how you would run a company versus I'm trying to focus on things that I think will make the company an outlier beyond just the product. That's a really thoughtful comment from someone who is in the asset management industry and partially fintech. There's been a million times where I've seen something, I know where all the bodies are buried. And I'm like, man, that idea has been tried 40 times and it has never worked. It is a graveyard, almost to my detriment, where if someone finally figures out the right product market fit, or I've looked at a bunch. I've seen this a lot. One of the big areas I missed was the fractionalization of a lot of the collectible asset class. And my foolish concept on that was I said, I've seen a gazillion wine funds. I've seen a Mm -hmm. gazillion farmland funds. They really have trouble scaling. And while that's been true historically, now it's not. (laughs) And so you have a dozen of these platforms that have nailed it on that sort of world. I'm happy to eat crow on it, but it's an interesting blind spot for me personally. And and I think it's once you're aware of it can be useful to at least be understand that you have that sort of too much knowledge is good. Or at least if like you said, recognizing that blind spot. And if you find yourself going too negative because you know where all the bodies are buried, at least making yourself examine the why now question, because they're probably 
amazing deep reasons that you know that those things didn't work. And the answer a lot of times is a why now in terms of mobile technology, things happening differently in the security space, et cetera, things that you're able to do with a lot of things as far as fractionalized stuff. Because we're now obviously seeing like fractionalized real estate, all this stuff that maybe probably didn't make sense five, 10 years ago. There's a different kind of why now. Nobody's perfect at it, but I really try to be conscious. If I'm really high on something or really low, trying to dig into why that is or get a fresh set of eyes or kind of ask the why now question. Because I was like, I certainly do that too. With real estate, when I find a prop tech company that I really like, I'm super happy about it because it's past double layers of filtration. But I know that's an area where I have a blind spot because I feel like I know X, Y, and Z. So I I think you're right. That self-examination is important. You get your feet wet. You start to make some investments. You start to see some traction, some markups. I imagine a couple of liquidity events as well as some zeros. What was the evolution from pure allocator investor to syndicate lead? That takes a certain amount of chutzpah to go from saying, hey, I'm going from someone who can just anonymously, quietly allocate to, hey, I'm going to be the one bringing these to an audience. Mm -hmm. What was the thesis there and how'd you make it happen? I would agree with you there. There are some days where it's draining and I kind of wish I was quietly in the shadows. And naturally, I'm, I'm kind of an introvert, right? And that doesn't work for this. You're building, syndicating, you're building in a quasi-public way. You're in front of so many people and, and having to put yourself out there if you want to be successful at it. So definitely one where I had to step outside the comfort zone. But the decisioning behind it, Part of it was what I mentioned to you, like kind of just seeing the opportunity in the market at that moment in terms of COVID hitting and things being virtual and the opportunity to kind of get into some deals. So obviously, granted, I could have done that still deploying my own capital. But also, there were a couple of other things behind it. One, I was, as an individual investor, mostly focused on earlier stage stuff. Um, But I also, I wanted to diversify. I wanted to get into some later stage deals as well, because my thought around private investing is, I'm not sure why it has to look dramatically different from public investing in terms of the number one rule of investing is still diversification. And so my own view in constructing a portfolio, I was like, I don't want to be exposed to all early stuff. I want to have some singles and doubles along with the home runs and be exposed to different geographies, sectors, et cetera. And I think that kind of basket overall is how I'm going to have return profile that I want. And I'm like, okay, well, if you want to start to play like that, you need to be able to bring big checks to the table and the more network, et cetera. Syndicate, from what I could see, you know, just observing them on AngelList seemed like a great and also highly flexible tool to do that. Because as a syndicate, Obviously, every deal stands alone. You don't have a target ownership percentage. You can be pretty flexible. I like that idea of being armed with this capital, this potential capital, this potential network, and this potential flexibility to be super opportunistic and to execute quickly. So I just thought it was a nice marriage between how I wanted to approach things and the timing and the market. And then the other aspect of it, as someone who backed probably a couple hundred syndicates on AngelList, and I don't know how many thousands of investors are on it, I'd not really seen many women leading deal in any visible way. And I had not seen any people of color leading deals in a visible way outside of the South Asian community, which has done an amazing job with Adventure. And that troubled me. 
And I thought at first up, I was like, I think I've got access to the deal flow. I think I've got a pretty good eye. Maybe I can do this and show that it's possible um, that you can do this without coming from whatever venture background, without having been anointed by this firm or this internship or whatever else, if you hustle and hope that other people might follow the same path, that was kind of the motivation. I've said this before too, and this, I feel like I get pushed back from other people about it. I tell our listeners, I say, just go sign up for every single syndicate you can possibly get. The downside is you're going to have a full inbox. I just turn off every single notification and email from AngelList off. And the way to do it, listeners, is you can just check in whatever your frequency is once a day, once a week, whatever, and just start reading the deal memos. And you start to develop, A, the jargon of angel investing, what's GMV, what's ARR, on and on. But also, you start to get the pattern recognition of when someone may be blowing a little smoke at you or BSing a little bit or leaving something out, you start to read mm-hmm. a thousand decks. There's a little counter. AngelList keeps track of how many you've reviewed. And I think mine's like past 5,000 now. And just take the time and set aside an hour a week. But a lot of people say, no, that's crazy. That's too many. It's the wrong focus. But I actually think that's the right way to do it, which is the way you did it. Talk to me how you jumped though. How does one go from having the deal flow show up at your feet? You wake up in the morning, you have a croissant, some coffee, <laughs> 20 deals in your inbox to being the one that's out like hustling. Cause that's a lot harder. How did you go from saying, okay, I can write a check to I can write a hundred or how many ever syndicate backers there are a thousand checks, but I got to convince these companies to let me do it. How do you even find the companies? A lot of it early for me was on AngelList, which is like you said, requires nothing other than me. There's work involved and I did everything you do in terms of putting aside this time and reading these memos. By the end of the day, like you put it, you can have your coffee and sit there and click through and, and it eliminates 99% of the work on your part. For me, the first step was testing the ability to get in deals directly. I did that two ways. Number one was accelerators, right? So there's obviously like the Y Combinator, 500 startups and all of that, where these startups are public. And I guess anyone can get into the fray, not that everyone's going to answer, but working and going in these environments, which is probably the hardest environments because everyone is looking at the same companies at the same time, but kind of like swimming with the sharks and saying like, refining my pitch and getting comfortable reaching out to people and refining the pitch in that way. And then frankly, like a lot of cold emailing, like I don't really do much or any of that now. I don't have to at this point, but just not being afraid in that regard. And and in terms of how I was just discovering companies, I mean, a little bit of everything. It could be as every reputable tech publication that I could get my hands on or newsletters from these accelerators, et cetera, crunch base, pitch book, whatever, you name it, voraciously kind of diving into that stuff every day. And as simple as I read about something and I think it's really surface level, interesting to me and just reaching out and seeing what happens. Even things, which one thing I will do is is like sometimes I'm I'm just on my LinkedIn feed and somebody, mutual friend or somebody I like, likes or is commenting on some startup. And I'm just like being curious, I think is a big part of that. And I'm like, oh shit, what's that? Click on that. And I'm like, oh, this is awesome. And if I can't get a warm intro, go cold and see what happens. And I was frankly, presently surprised with how often that actually worked. And then you start to realize, like, particularly one benefit of, of if you're doing it at a 
pretty significant cadence is that I did have a portfolio behind me and I could stand on that as you build the other things to stand on. So like as you go further in your journey, whether it's your brand, whether it's your past investments, whether operator experience, whatever you have, there's so many different kind of things you can stand on. They stack up over time. But when you get started, you start with whatever you can, whatever your wedge might be, and and just kind of be fearless in that way. So it was a lot of direct investing. Then I started looking into like, what are the networks here? Like looking at different angel groups. I joined a really prolific group called Angels, and they had amazing access to deals, life science angels. There are a number of different groups. After I'd already been syndicating, did some angel fellowships like First Rounds, Angel Track, and On Deck, and some of these others more for community, but just like always being curious and always trying to figure out like, where are these people? Where are they aggregated? Like, where are these communities? Like, where are these access points and exploring them and being curious and being bold and seeing what happened. And once I was seeing, it was kind of like beta testing, but I was seeing like, I can get deals. I can get deals. And I think if they're going to allow me to put an X, I don't think they're going to have a problem with me putting in Y. So now I just have to solve for why, which is aggregating the capital and building the syndicate. And so, I mean, I think I understood really early on, okay, you have to solve for deal flow, but you have to solve for the audience. And for me, AngelList was like the perfect tool to build that out because on top of kind of the backend stuff, I mean, AngelList is a marketplace, right? <laughs> it, solves the, it solves the trust thing it's a discovery tool. So I was like, I can be discovered here and discover investors. Everybody does it now. But my early insight is like, I need to partner with people who have done this and done it prolifically. So I, in the beginning, my first deal, I was like, I'm not going to worry about the economics. I'm just going to worry about getting the deal done, making an awesome first impression to the company or making awesome first impression on the platform to that initial base of users and to the company and just making it about that and not really concerning myself about economic, just execution, execution. So I partnered my very first deal. I had a couple that were running in tandem, but I did a deal called Foodology with a syndicate called Unpopular Ventures with Peter Livingston. A fellow podcast alum on the show. Yeah. And so he had this awesome syndicate. I loved a lot of what he was doing in emerging markets. And I had this deal... I feel like it's really going to resonate. Went to Peter with it. He loved it. He supported me on that first raise by promoting it to his syndicate as well. And then after doing that one deal with him, I went from overnight within a couple of weeks, had a few hundred LPs just from that deal. It was the very first deal I ever did on AngelList. Closed, I think, July of last year. And then Two weeks ago, they just had their Series A led by Andreessen, but it had none of those flashy people when (laughs) Peter and I first came in. But that was kind of a full circle moment for me and just reifies the thinking that it's like in the beginning, just worry about reputation, delivering to your LPs, delivering to the company. Don't so much focus on the money because if you do it right and you build this thing correctly, all of that will come kind of a long horizon thinker on that front. I invested right there along with you on that one, Ashley. So well done. How nerve wracking was the first few deals? Because you think of traditional fund of funds or an allocator, you call up a company and you say, company, I'm interested in what you're doing. It seems pretty cool. Can you send me your deck? Are you raising money? Get to the point where you say, all right, I'd be interested in investing. However, 
I can probably invest somewhere between zero and a million dollars. I'm not going to know where yet. How nerve wracking is that conversation? If not at all, could be. How does that conversation go with companies? I, I assume it's a little more commonplace now that people get it. In a world awash with cash, how does that conversation go end of 2021? It's a different conversation now than it was deals one through 10, right? Where I was kind of tinkering and getting to know the audience, getting to know what was effective, et cetera. Present day, you still kind of have to give the conversation of a range, but if you've done it enough, uh, you've done enough different types of deals and built out a pretty robust syndicate, I'm usually right. And so I take an attitude of under promise over deliver. If I get a deal like based on kind of the big characteristics that I know resonate, I'm reasonably sure what I can do at a minimum. And I say, hey, let's do that. But just so you know, this is a syndicate. This is how it works. This is the timeline. After one to two days, I'm going to know if this thing is really going to rock it and I'm potentially going to be able to fill much more than I'm telling you. But I'm committing to you hell or high water. You don't have to think about it. If I tell you I'm going to do X, I'm going to do X. And that's the way I I operate. More often than not, I'm pretty right. Um, Usually I underestimate. Sometimes I've had some deals where the minimum ticket size is is pretty big relative to Angelus. But now I'm able to kind of bite that off just by kind of the size of the syndicate, but also having developed relationships I get some seven-figure allocation. I was like, okay, I know other syndicate leads. I know other groups. So if the minimum ticket size is a million and it's the kind of deal and it's a great, great deal, I will figure it out, hell or high water, and I'll go in with that mindset. But in the beginning, you really didn't know. So it was being candid, but still sound of a similar approach of under-promise, over-deliver. Like, this is the syndicate. This is what it means. This is the possible range. How about you and I just have an open dialogue? I'll be transparent about how it's going. And then you and I can correct as we go into the process. And I found that for the most part, folks were receptive to that. But in the beginning, had no real idea really of what things were going to do, potentially deal to deal versus once you get pretty experienced, nobody's going to, I guess, be correct 100% of the time, but you get a real feel for what you're really usually able to do. How many deals did it take you to get that comfort level? I could just picture the first three or five would have been a little nerve wracking. It's like you sent out this email into the ether and you're like, here's this company. And then you just wait for people to invest. Is it like you just get notifications like, all right, 5K, 1K, 2K. Did it take a while to get comfortable or was it like out of the gate? It felt like this was going to work. I still think it takes a while. I think even now, sometimes you can still kind of get a little bit of the pregame jitters. (laughs) as far as launching a deal, but things like I'm more relaxed. Like when you're first doing a deal, you don't get pinged every time someone invests. You kind of, at least on AngelList, you've got this bar ticking across with your allocation. And so you're on your phone or your laptop or whatever, like constantly refreshing, trying to see what's doing what. And so it's a lot. It can feel overwhelming in terms of when I really started to feel like I had my bearings around that. I don't know if it was a deal number. It might have been more of a time thing. Like it probably month six or nine, frankly, in terms of comfort zone, because I think you need to be through a few quarters, a few different cycles. You need to see things go right. You need to see things go wrong. You need to see things happen that are first instance and seeing how you deal with different fact patterns. 
you went out and raised this money and the company said, just kidding, it's oversubscribed. You need to invest to the slightly higher cap or all these different scenarios. And if you've never like done this before and you're thinking about like my reputation and I'm just starting to build, you really have to go through all of those scenarios and get your feet wet. And then once you have the most anxiety at the time, but once you get through them, and survive them and see things are okay, then you kind of get your wind under you and it's good. So I don't even know that that's tied to a certain number of deals so much as mm. time and you need enough stuff to go wrong or just be a wrinkle to have to deal with and really adjust to, frankly, that investor relations component. And for me, that was one thing where I was comfortable because even in my role in the real estate world, like I've done like a ton of investor relations work and outside of the US as well. So I'm pretty comfortable dealing in that space where people are investing huge amounts of money and how do you solve and when there are issues or just things to communicate, et cetera. So I was a bit comfortable there, but I just think you have to get through those cycles. Would love to hear to the extent you can mention a few ideas that you as almost like a case study or walk through some of your investments of the past couple of years. Here's a company. Here's why we did it. Here's the thesis. Here's how it came to be. Any of your children come to mind? There are so many. So apologies in advance <laughs> for all that are left out. I'm happy to talk about as many of you like. One recent one that I'm pretty excited about that I did, I think maybe just like two months ago, it was an ed tech company called Inspira Futures. And ed tech was one of the areas that I have the least exposure to because it's not like it's an area that's not intuitive, right? Through all cycles of education since kindergarten. But I'm just like, I just fundamentally usually don't understand like how some company sticks out out there. So it, it's an area where I'm kind of cautious about unless a model like really hits me over the head. But again, that's where that distribution mindset comes in mind and that kind of category creation thought. So in Spirit Futures, their whole concept was creating this managed marketplace between counselors and higher educations, first starting with grad school, MDs and MBAs, and then filtering down to college and kind of matching them with students around preparation for college admissions, and then of course could expand. And I thought that was really interesting. Obviously, there was like the huge varsity blues scandal. So for me, the insight there was you would think that this would exist on some scale, but clearly it doesn't if people are literally willing to go to jail to try to get their kids some leg up in college admissions. So I'm like, the idea, I was like, that checks out. But you know me, like I said, I'm not just purely an idea person, but I was like, there's a real category to be owned there. And then as I like dove in with the team and started getting excited about how they were looking at distribution, the partnership, how quickly they were getting supply on the platform, and then also how they were thinking about global distribution and appreciating that actually they probably get a lot of hits from like PRC, Middle East, et cetera. Had some interesting conversations with me early about immigration agents and some of these other education companies that own some of these customers early for other reason. I'm like, if you like nail relationships with these groups that you're talking about, you can get really big, really fast. So I started to get excited, even though I don't really like EdTech. 
ended up investing syndicated on angel list and it's only been two months and they've like tripled revenue in two months and like are going crazy. I'm really excited about what they might end up ultimately doing. That's a pretty recent example that comes to mind and kind of shows the thinking. I'll give you one or two more pitches. Let's hear them. I've done it both ways, right? I've done it as the active investor, the syndicator, and I've also done it as a passive investor. And as a passive investor, obviously, it's nice like sitting back, but in some ways, you have one arm tied behind your back. You're getting the filter diligence. You're hoping you're getting some diligence, which is another case. You're not getting to meet the team, et cetera. So you've really got to focus in on other things and really be tight about sticking to whatever your thesis is for evaluation. So I'll take it back to the company that I mentioned, Turing, which I guess actually I did end up syndicating two of their last notes. When I first saw them, it was through a syndicate. I think it was one of my first 2018, maybe early 2019. So I think it was among like my first 10 or so investments that I ever did. They had no revenue. The cap was like a little egregious, but their whole idea, and this was pre-COVID, they were playing around this idea and it resonated with some themes from my background, but this idea of a distributed workforce this idea that there's a global talent pool, if you're not biased, can be as talented as the talent pool here and infinitely cheaper. And starting with engineers and the idea of having a Google quality engineer, but a fraction of the price, and then that working well for the engineer, because even at a fraction of the price, that income might far exceed what they're getting in their local region. And we're doing some interesting things around AI and screening. And so I was like, this is really interesting and not knowing like their product would really blow up because of COVID, but like the product, but again, seizing on that and reading it through that bigger type of mindset. I love what they were doing around distribution in terms of, I was like, they figured out how to make this really scalable because of the things they were doing around AI. And I love the fact that they were doing some interesting stuff from a promotional standpoint and towards of like, almost making it from a sales point of what do you have to lose type of thing in terms of them underwriting the work and how they were going about the products. And I thought that was really interesting. And fast forward, they've gone from zero to infinity and have knocked it out of the box. And now what they're doing, obviously got a boost by COVID is more salient than ever. But that's one that I really like. Another I didn't syndicate, but I actually invested in through Peter with a company called Outer. And so this is, again, around that distribution thesis. So no disrespect, but from reading the materials, there was nothing that stood out for me from a product standpoint, because it was like outdoor furniture. Who looks at that and knows that that's necessarily going to be a huge thing. But I thought, and Peter did an amazing job of his memo, really focusing around that distribution. I was like, wasn't something that they invented something. They just went, dusted off a playbook that I was like, I don't know why people went away from this. They basically had this idea of individual peoples could kind of have their own sales rooms or whatever at their homes, thinking about like Tupperware parties, Mary Kay, whatever you want to say it. I was like, that business model can be really effective when married with the right product. And I was thinking about outdoor furniture. I'm like, I can't name a single brand. I know it's something people spend a lot of money on. I think it's something that living in the suburbs, people show off. But I was like, so someone could own that because no one does. And then I really thought the distribution was awesome. I just I just pictured people in my neighborhood 
inviting friends over and showing them the outdoor stuff and that kind of sales model. Shortly thereafter, I mean, they were among the fastest growing D2C companies, period. I think ended up getting an investment from Sequoia, all that other stuff. But it's again, kind of example of even if you don't have direct access to the company, et cetera, if you kind of stay true to what your true north is, looking at deals that even and don't get sometimes biased on the product, but focus on some of those other things, you can end up in some really interesting deals. As you look back on your own personal investing, and this could apply to the syndicate excitement too, how often do you think your own personal And I wish I had gone back and rated kind of all my investments from initiation on like one to 10. They passed the filter. So like it's in the queue of an investment. But then even then once it's passed, like one to 10, I'm one interested in this. I think it's going to work to 10 being like, this is the best idea I've ever heard. I want to put all my money in this. Like, I think this is going to be a huge winner. How much correlation do you think there is? The extension of that question is as you pitch deals to the end investors, I imagine there's times where you're like strangling people who are like, you guys don't understand. This is an amazing idea. Or other times it's just like the money's flooding in, it's quadruple oversubscribed. And you're like, really? Like another whatever company? Both points are pretty on point. I'll take the latter first. There are some times that I go do a deal and I'm like, this is it. Like, this is amazing. It checks all this box. I'm like seeing so many of the things that I want to see. Like, I think I'm communicating that memo and it does, you know, it's pretty good, but I'm like, I thought that I would have raised at least like twice as much. This is an awesome company. And then that company goes on and does freaking amazing. There's almost a correlation between the deals that raise the least actually being the best deals, maybe because those are truly outlier opportunities might be the correlation there versus some where I'm like, I have conviction in every deal I do, but you know, some deals are like more run of the mill or maybe because they are later stage or people feel like they're risk. but I'm like, wow, really? That's the thing that you're <laughs> you're pouring all your money in, at least relative to this other deal? There's definitely a lot of that and you can't control that. And, and I think that might be some of the nature of angel investing and party rounds. Like if you do certain deals that have certain investors attached to them, it's just going to raise a lot of money. That's just how it is versus another deal may not have that same signal, but it is an amazing deal. Those are trickier, but that's just the nature of this, unfortunately. On your other point in terms of like, what's the correlation between hype and and doing well? I think that would be an interesting exercise, but I feel like personally, the results will be mixed because I look at some deals that I'm like, I wasn't over the moon excited about. I'm like, okay, that's pretty cool. It obviously, like you said, met the filter. And I might've been like, ah, should I do it? And I'm like, okay, I do it. And I'm like, damn, I wish I'd put everything I owned into that deal, like in hindsight. And it's easy to play that kind of Monday morning quarterback. I think like it happens less and less that there's a deal where you're like over the moon excited and then it becomes that, but that does happen. So I know for me, one of those deals, I remember when I first read Pipe, I was like, holy shit. (laughs) <laughs> like, but I wish I'd put more into it. And then lo and behold, obviously, within, I don't know what it was, like six months or something, nine months, it became a unicorn. But it happens every now and again, you read a deal or meet a founder and you're like, wow, like stars align. But I bet if we look back over the course of five, 10 years, among those deals that tilt the Richter scale the most, 
there'll probably be a mixed number between failures and successes for the things that get you the most excited, that it's probably pretty binary and that you're excited because it could be really huge, which means it could also be a huge loss as well. For the people who are the investors, your LP syndicate backers slash people new to this world or experience, just you want to convey some info. What are some of the good resources other than just signing up following syndicates? Are there any specific events you recommend? Maybe the demo days, any other resources where you're like, look, this is a great daily newsletter to subscribe to. What are some of the main waypoints for you? For sure, recommend signing up for demo days, even if you're not in the fray, just listening to the pitches, et cetera, being around that. Obviously, I'm a big proponent of AngelList and owe a lot of my getting started to kind of being able to use that platform to learn and network and grow. There's also a number of angel groups are a good way. And also they're like angel fellowships and those are growing. So You've got like On Deck has a fellowship, First Round Capital has a fellowship, Hustle Fund, they have this thing called Angel Squad, and there are probably like five or six others. And those are ways to take like a cohort learning-based approach. And so that could be really helpful. And then beyond that, I don't know if you learn, if there's any like newsletter or anything that I learn from. I mean, there are ones that are interesting to keep abreast with like what's going on, like Term Sheet or Axios Pro Rata. PitchBook has a summary and you can kind of follow those to see what's getting funded, et cetera. And that's good as far as keeping up with trends. Packy Cormick has a newsletter called Not Boring. And that's really good because he tends to, um, and he's a fellow Duke guy, so you might have something against him there. <laughs> but he tends to take really deep dives into startups or horse modems on things. And so I think that could be a pretty good educational resource for people who want to see into the mind of someone in venture and how they're thinking through deals. But like to your point, for me, the best education was backing the syndicates and doing the work of reading through everything because I'm like, if I back, obviously syndicates operate at different cadences, but I was like, if I can look at on AngelList, whatever your tolerance is, 10, 20, whatever deals a week from 10 or 15 different perspectives and see what they look at, what they focus on, see what the cadences, see what the trends are, learn about these different markets and sectors. For me, that's the best learning that there is, frankly. What's the future look like for you? What's the plan for 2022, 2025? We have you back <laughs> on the podcast next year, a few years from now. Are you going to be growing the syndicate? Are you going to be what? What's the eyes on the horizon? I want to continue the mindset that I had going into this, which is being curious, experimenting and kind of walking through open doors. That was my mindset coming into it and hustling. And I want to do more of the same because I like where that's gotten me so far. So I'm not really doing this with any finite objective of I have to raise a fund or I have to have this much under management or I have to do X, Y, and Z. It would also deflate a lot of what I like about it. And the answer is I have no idea, but I like to think that if I keep my head down, keep doing what I'm doing, something really awesome will germinate. And I'm excited to see what that'll be. And so much of life before was planned, do well in school to go to this undergrad, to go to this law school, to work at this firm, to do this. And what I like about venture is like, I don't have to do that here. And so uh, I'm trying to be intentional about not doing that here. As you look back, I know it's only been a number of years in the making and almost all of these are TBD. What's been the most memorable investment for you? Good, bad, in between? Anything seared into your brain? 
I think it is mostly TBD because obviously I go vain and name some things that have had the big markups and the pipes and all that stuff. But I don't know that any one really changes everything, but I feel like that answer could look differently. But I guess if I had to name something, I'm kind of excited about some of the ones and maybe there's a bias there because they've experienced liquidity events, but some of the ones that were really outside of my scope of expertise, because kind of what I did, we talked about early in the podcast of like starting off on familiar ground and then taking that thesis and applying it more broadly. At first, I start stuck to familiar areas, eventually branched out and started investing in things that were like so outside of my depth, but still trying to apply some of that same thinking. For example, I had a couple of SPACs in the last few months, one XX trucks and the other vicarious surgical. These are electric trucks and deep tech and robotics, et cetera. That's not the world that I come from. But it was this idea like they resonate with me because it told me like if you stick to that lens, even if you apply it to things where you don't have the deep technical understanding necessarily, you can be successful. And then just me being proud of myself for kind of branching outside of things strictly in my comfort zone and seeing that bear fruit. Ashley, where do people fall along? They want to sign up for your syndicate. They want to see what you're up to. What's the best places to go? I don't know if I can be considered as operating in ventures since I don't use Twitter. If people want to find me, I'm actually probably unusually responsive on LinkedIn or get in touch with me via the website or just find me on AngelList, put in my name and I'll I'll come up in my syndicate. We'll add these all links to the show notes, listeners, medfaber.com forward slash podcast. Ashley, it has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us today. All right. Thanks for having me. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at medfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the medfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.